This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Bandwidth brought to you by Pelgrane Press. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... Psychedelic Toad People. Necrobotic Spiders. Ruralism in Fantasy. And Uri Geller's Micronation. Remember that Dinosaur 5e game we were talking about? Hmm, you mean the one from Atlas Games, uh, Plane something? It's Plane Gia, Robin. The Star Shaman Song of Plane Gia, to be exact. Oh yes, the prehistoric setting for 5e. Well, you can dive into Stone Age fantasy role-playing right now! Tell me more! The digital version of the core book has dropped, so you can order it now for immediate download from Atlas Games. That's awesome! Dare you say Dinorific? I do dare say Dinorific. There's the Plain Gia Core Book PDF, plus the heart-pounding adventure Lair of the Night Thing in PDF, and the custom-created soundtrack featuring 54 separate tracks called The Songs of the Stone Age. The meeping, the gibbering, the squelching, the cosmic sense of alienation in a universe that uncares welcomes you once more, if an uncaring universe can in fact be said to welcome you, into the Mythos Hut. And in the Mythos Hut, we are going to do the occasional thing that we do, where we help out poor old H.P. Lovecraft. He was a busy guy. He had all those letters to write. He couldn't get and, to and everything. he slowed down every, in recent years as well. He has. He has. Well, he, <laughs> yes, let, let's say that he has. Anyway, he already gave us fish people, who are also frog people. And he borrowed and polished up Robert E. Howard's snake people. So we're going to, in this issue of the Mythos Hut edition, installation, whatever it is. I don't know what the, an instance of a hut is now. I'm, I'm thrown <laughs> off. Yeah, we won't know until we get into the instance hut. Right, into the instance hut. Anyway, what we're going to do is we're going to make toad people. Toad humanoids, specifically, ideally, those based on the psychedelic Bufo Alvarius toad, the Colorado River toad, as he is known at home, which, Robin, I suspect we have further plans for once we've got him built, but I, I, we should begin by getting him built, right? Yes. Well, we'll leave it as an exercise for the listener to know which game a psychedelic toad <laughs> will later be scenario hooked into. Ash and stars, everybody. Yes, exactly. So, as we've already said on the tin, Toad people, they're underrepresented in, uh, in, in horror. I think there's some Marvel comic book toad people, but other than that, I mean, toads are, are kind of alarming uh, in lots of ways, especially if you make them much bigger and you make them more like people, because who, who's more alarming than people? Right. So, Well, people covered in poison warts, I think, are more alarming than people. That's correct. So let's make some. <laughs> so uh, I think have investigated a bit of the animal that will be turning into a people, and they have some superpowers. I mean, they have some characteristics that, in the proper hands, our hands, can turn kind of creepy. So, for example, they swallow their food whole. They they don't have teeth. So, one assumes that our, our toad people either um, chop you up with their axes, or they swallow you whole in some sort of horrific mystic sense, uh, which we will probably get to. Toads have excellent night vision, which is always very helpful for a monster. They shed their skin, which I think is part of how we're going to get toad people to happen, right? The, the, the etiology of toad people, Robin. Uh, serpent people existed since before, you know, the Cretaceous era and have been shape-shifting down through history. Deep ones are the spawn of Dagon and human uh, uh, worshippers. Toad people, I think, they're people who have something happen, some mythos shock which we can address maybe later. And then they go off into the desert like prophets and weirdos do. And in the desert, they dry out and their skin splits open. And when they emerge, they're not regular people anymore, Robin. They're toad people. That's what I think. Right. That's how we get a toad people. So this is a little different than the strict hybridization, but perhaps allows them to uh, periodically, perhaps with difficult rites that are costly to them, to reassume human form, which is always useful in an investigative game context, mm -hmm. uh, so that they're not just 
monsters you go and find and, you know, you hit them with your axe, but rather they can interact in human society and do things and cause mysteries, so that's always good. And that's a nice little twist, though, that they started out human rather than being the uh, the hybrids that uh, the Deep Ones are, because you don't want to rip off the Deep Ones, you know, just 100% and yep. then say, but these ones are toads, because that's not as interesting. Well, what, what you can have is when the toad people's skin itself splits, then the person that emerges looks like a regular person, and then eventually their warts and their uh, dry toad skin grow back, right? Like in a regular toad, when it comes out of its skin, it's all shiny and fresh, and you'd think, oh, it's a frog, but then you'd look closer and say, no, that's just a shiny toad. Yeah, you can shed your toad skin, and then you've got X amount of time to go around being human. And of course, you know, toads can't shed their skin at will. It's part of a life cycle. So Mm -hmm. that also creates an interesting limitation that can create odd behavior that the investigators then... Have to figure out. It would seem to me that the obvious thing that people would do that would cause them to turn into toads would be to get involved with Zothagua, mm-hmm. who has a, a toad-like aspect. And there are other qualities they have, though, which are fun and creepy. So they can walk around on lake bottoms. So that assumes that that's where they're hanging out. They may go into the desert for their sort of vision quest where they turn into something uh, unexpected. But then they're all hanging around in the bottom of lakes because I'm going to say that even though uh, they are uh, indifferent to mankind after they embrace Sothagua and probably afraid of mankind because they know that if they make themselves openly visible to the world that people will come and try to kill them, that maybe the average member of the the Toad people, and I'm going to give them a Lovecraftian name, I'm going to call them the Zathok Yem, that they may not be that malign. You know, they're just hanging out Being toad people, like Sasagua, they have a certain element of sloth to them. They have, you know, regrettably, they have an impulse that requires them to eat a certain amount of, you know, mammal flesh or other, even other animals. You know, they're carnivores. So, you know, if you swim in the wrong lake at the wrong time, yeah, sure, they're going to swallow you whole. But that's not malign per se that's just you know respecting the the way the food chain works right well yes and no i mean sathagwa is the laziest of the great old ones which is why he is in so many ways the favorite of many writers but (laughs) he's also still in many ways the embodiment of when magicians seek out power especially in clark ash and smith they they find themselves drawn to sathagwa so if magic is seen as the shortcut, I feel like that's why Sathagwa embodies it. So people who pursue mythos magic are generally not doing it because they just want to chill and grill. Right. I feel like they have other agendas. Right. It's, it, it is their own darn fault, though. Yeah. And of course, what draws people to seek out the Zathok Yem is their psychedelic ichor that they uh, exude. Mm-hmm. And so it is sort of, a, I think, a classic twilight zone thing where you're uh, seeking the psychedelic revelation the elixir of the gods and then you find the toads who are maybe all like you know maybe they're you know you mentioned the writer connection maybe they're like freelance writers their number one piece of advice is don't become a zathok yam oh no really you're gonna hold us down and take the ick no don't and then of course person takes the icker gets successful for a little while gets whatever uh, cosmic insights allow them to thrive in the world. And then their skin starts to pucker and they have an urge to go to the desert for the ultimate revelation. And then they find out they've uh, Zathok yam to themselves. Right. The other thing, obviously, is people pursue psychedelic experiences just for their own sake. Or, as you say, not necessarily in a sort of a, um, a Lamia type deal where I will do this and become a better writer. They're doing this either out of a desire to understand you know, the universe on a philosophical level or just... Which you should never do in the Lovecraft No, universe. don't do that in Lovecraft. Or just to get high. And I feel like this is where some of the swallowing whole and the notion of the toads as the witch's familiar and even the mystical gem that they supposedly keep in their head that provides you wisdom can come in. Yeah, that that's when just, you- just, just a, a metaphor for the ichor. That's just right. like a way of, you know, uh, initially... You know, if you take literally that there's a jewel in the head, you're not going to be prepared for what happens when it's not a jewel, it's ichor. I got to drink the ichor. 
Oh, well, you know, I, I've gotten this far. I might as well drink the ichor. I would have preferred a jewel, but there we go. There we go. Well, the notion that the magician's journey, the magician's pathworking journey is recapitulated by your psychedelic trip, which if you take it enough times or in the company of a witch, or if you are a witch and you're taking it in the company of another Sathok Yem that is not trying to prevent you from being one of them, but is trying to lead you into this communion with Sathagwa for whatever reason, that eventually the sort of the culminating vision that you have is of some sort of shining jewel, perhaps even a trapezohedral jewel, perhaps. And that it is the beholding of this jewel that swallows your soul whole. And what comes back is you, but without that part that the, that is now living in the, the, the gem of the Sathok Yem in the psychedelic dream plane or the psychedelic space, whatever dimension of hyperspace it is that you enter when you uh, go on an acid trip. Uh, the one that's the next one up is the Sathok Yem Iker trip. So that's where their species immortality is and their species knowledge is, is it's all stored up in that gem and the, the people part that wander around and sleep in the bottom of lakes and eat things whole. They're capable of reconnecting to their original self, but that hole is more likely to be filled by, you know, an exudation of Sathagwa, right? That it's, you know, we, we all know people who have allowed their pharmaceutical hobbies to replace their personality. This just happens a, a good bit with the Sathok Yem, I would think. Right. So we telegraphed heavily enough that if these are psychedelic Lovecraftian creatures, that it must be Fall of Delta Green that we're going to uh, meet them in. And the obvious thing to do is to uh, tie them into the, the psychedelic revolution. So I don't know, Ken, is it too on the nose to have the Sathok Yem be the source of the famous brown acid at Woodstock that there was an announcement from the stage for people not to take because it was bad and causing bad trips. And then later, LSD aficionado said, oh man, it wasn't bad. It was just very powerful and people weren't prepared for it. So lots of people were trying it the first time and it was too powerful for them. Well, what is brown and too powerful but the spirit of the of the Zathok Yem, which has somehow been put on microdots? Is that too obvious, a 60s moment to do in Fall of Delta Green? I feel like... I, having in my fall of Delta Green campaign done the rising of the Pentagon, the 1968 Democratic Convention, and the murder of Raymond Navarro, I feel like if you can make it work, make it work. Your campaign is the only one that discovers that the brown acid at uh, Woodstock is exudations of the Sathok Yem. We don't have to say that all bad acid everywhere is Sathok Yem acid. Right. Or the Sathok Yem can have been one type of acid that gets stepped on for street consumption. And that stepping on process turns it from a pure Sathok Yem experience to merely a bad trip that also happens to open your doors to Sathok Yem if you find yourself out in the desert near the reservoir that one time. Right. Uh, another possibility, if you want to do something, you know, 10% less iconic, is to look at the career of uh, Owsley Stanley, who is the sort of king of Bay Area acid and was famous for the uh, extreme uh, purity and power of his uh, psychedelics. It's like the Johnny Appleseed or the uh, Paul Bunyan of, of LSD making. Right. So you could fictionalize him into someone or even use him in, at the privacy of your own table in his quest for the, you know, the ultimate uh, psychedelic that someone, you know, gives him some uh, Zafak Yem derived chemistry and uh, he puts that uh, possibly into his Monterey purple to uh, name check uh, another famous rock festival from that period. And again, that can begin spreading Zithagua consciousness. And so, uh, you know, 90, 95% of the people who take it just have a weird or intense experience, but the 5% who are already just a little bit twisted inside are the ones who decide to find themselves that the spawning ground, the lake, of the Zathok Yem. So we've got a problem. We've got a disorder in the world. We've got people being introduced into uh, Sathagua by uh, this uh, psychedelic substance. We've got the threat of a whole bunch more toad people. So uh, how does a group of Delta Green agents come into this? Well, it can either be, uh, like you say, that they're just that group that was at Woodstock and discovered that 
the brown acid was more than that. They can have been part of a team in the Bay Area that is working alongside, we'll say, or across from the Majestic Ultra program that Majestic's quest to weaponize the Dreamlands and understand all the drugs ties into the old Project Chick Wit Operation Often CIA uh, slurry of bad behaviors. Uh, depending on how deep you want to go, you can tie it into the, that book Chaos that says that uh, Manson was a, a CIA project built by uh, mind control and, and, and drug use. All of those currents are around in the Bay Area, certainly in the 60s. So you can be the Delta Green agents who are going up against Majestic on this over and over. And the Sathok Yem acid might be a thing that they first discover when Majestic tries to weaponize it and it fails or messes something up. Or they discover that it exists and they realize they have to keep it out of the hands of Majestic because it's even worse than regular mind-controlling acid is. And they have to go, ideally, of course, the way that you stop something like this is you do have to go to the source. So they would probably have to carry some sort of... um uh, mimetic uh, cargo or aclo glyph with them on their own trip into the space where the the gem of the Sathok Yem exists and have it drink that aclo as a sort of a poison pill that then prevents it from making Sathok Yem for another, you know, 33 years or whatever the the period would be that, you know, it wouldn't be forever. That's not how things work, but it would be, it, it has to sort of digest this, you know, mimetic cargo hole before it can uh, spawn again that that's yes. you know you eliminate the age of aquarius mass transformation and kick it down the road to the harmonic convergence right exactly some other group of player characters will have to we'll have to it. deal with it if you like the zafak yam enough to use them twice i think an interesting callback would then be you're searching for an X agent could be an X delta green could be majestic 12 some other organization someone who has a big secret that you need and you need others not to have. And then you discover that he's gone off and he's lake walking, as they call it in uh, intelligence jargon. He's uh, become a Zathok Yam. And so your, uh, your second adventure starring the toad people is your job is to find a specific toad person, exfiltrate them, wait until they shed the next time and are briefly human in order to uh, interrogate them and get uh, the information you need. And of course there's two forces then trying to recover this toad person once you've got him, which is A, the Zathok Yen themselves, and B, whatever other agency or group also wants that information and wants to stop you from having it. I feel like because acid is so much a part of 60s culture, you can go as deep into this as you want. One of my you know, things that got cut from the original Fall of Delta Green was a whole campaign frame called X Oblivioni, capital X, that would be the Delta Green program that explores inner space that goes deliberately micro micro dosing themselves with stuff to try and get to all the imaginary um, landscapes that are both the mythos and also the, you know, the place that's on all prog rock album covers, Yes, which turns out to be Hyperborea, uh, probably. Yes, if, if suddenly your job schedule changes as a player and you can't, you have to bail from the Delta Green campaign that you're in, you can be, well, can we have the, the thing where I have to take the psychedelics in order to go in and discover the thing or do the thing. And then at the end, I'm a toad person. Right. And then that will explain why I'm written off the uh, the show as it were. Yeah. That's um, or you just got transferred to ex oblivioni. And maybe when you come back, you can be a toad person. Yes. When you, when you have a special guest reappearance, you can, mm. uh, you can be a toad. Your, your skin can start splitting. Yes. <laughs> well, on that note, uh, when we're introducing uh, special toad reappearance cameos, it's time for us to hop on over this commercial and see what lurks on the other side. Track down foul sorcerers in a corrupt city. Clamber through underground ruins. Infiltrate the treasure vault of your decadent rival. Backstab your way to power and influence. In Swords of the Serpentine. The gumshoe game of swords and sorcery, investigation and intrigue. By Kevin Culp and Emily Dresner. And your mighty feud pals at Pelgrane Press. Strap on your blades for danger and forbidden knowledge. Tap into the corrupting source of sorcery for knowledge and power. Sharpen your tongue for the 
rigors of social combat. Prophesize secrets from the past, present, or future. Seek glory, justice, or the chance to live another day on the winding streets of Eversink. That's Swords of the Serpentine. Available now from Pelgrane Press. The bubbling of the Bunsen burners. The complicated computations of the Excel spreadsheet that really is 90% of your work these days tell us that we're once more having fun with science. And this time around, beloved backer Evan Hughes says, further to Robin's recent tweet on necrobiotic spiders, what is the logical and possibly ludicrous combination of this technology? And are these technically undead? So for those of you who do not religiously follow uh, my Twitter feed or anyone else who spots weird things and retweets them. Mm -hmm. Recently, there was a paper published in Advanced Science, which was too cool to not then be repeated by every pop science website, which is an exploration of finding spiders, dead spiders, because they have to be dead or it doesn't work, and turning them into basically little grabbers. And uh, what was especially grabbing about this is the people behind the paper, uh, the paper was written by uh, someone named Faye Yap, uh, I, I salute you, Faye, that just taking a spider and turning it into sort of a grabber hand meant that this was a robot. It was a necro-robot. And once you have a spider that's a necro-robot, it's entered Canon Robin territory. Yes. And in fact, uh, Faye Yap even took the extra row out. It's just necrobotics. So someone was alive to the possibilities already. I feel like Faye Yap is our kind of people. Yeah, she said it a bunch of times and yep. dropped the extra syllable. It sounded better. So the basic approach was that Faye or uh, one of her team noticed that uh, dead spiders in their lab uh, died. Yeah, just hanging around the lab, figuring out what crazy experiment to do next. Yep. What we, I don't know what's in the lab. Dead spider. Dead spider. And they said... That's weird how whenever you see a dead spider, its little arms are all curled up, right, in a little fist. So they looked into it, as a scientist does. Right. And it turns out that spiders don't have muscles the way that uh, we do. What they have is a tiny little hydraulic system. So that when the pressure of the fluid in their little spider legs goes away, by them dying, for example, they can't keep their legs apart, so they revert to closed mode and shut up like a little ball. Yes, it's not a little fist that's mad at death. Right. No, it's just... Or, well, possibly also. It, yeah, it's, it's an either-or, Robin. There's, you know, things exist on two levels. Yes. So they said, well, I'll bet we can turn this into a machine because it's... A uh, casing that has little holes for a hydraulic system. Yeah, so, hydraulics. We're engineers, right? This is a this is a paper that we'll get in the Smithsonian website. Yep. So they sealed off the little holes with super glue, and then inserted some kind of fluid into the legs to make him go. And now they have their own little uh, necrobotic spider uh, that they can use as a tiny grabber because, of course, they can control the the pressure of the hydraulics with their own pressure gun. So they've built a uh, necrobotic grabber that can lift 130% of the original weight of the spider. And right, which is a wolf spider. It's a wolf spider. It's it's not a tiny spider, although I assume you could do it with any kind of spider because they well, all... Well, in fact, the, the next step, they think, is to do it with even tinier spiders Yeah, because they can lift proportionally even more of their weight. Mm -hmm. Although, of course, that still means they're just lifting little specks and stuff. Right, yeah. But lifting their weight in terms of getting on the Smithsonian website, yes, 100%. They, more, than, more than lift their weight. Lift the weight of a whole team of Rice University scientists. And when I read that they were at Rice University, I was wondering if maybe they were at Ann Rice University, not the regular <laughs> one in Houston. But the first thing that they noticed was that spider corpses, even refilled with hydraulic fluid, decay. And so they uh, dipped them in beeswax... And that keeps your spider corpse good for about a thousand uses before it falls apart. And it's about this point where I, and perhaps others, said, you could have built a robot that would last forever with this much trouble, but you just want to animate to a spider. To the field of necrobotics. Exactly. What, what question are you raising? I don't get it. Right. And the possible use of this, Ken, yeah. this is not just a useful thought experiment, because you know what you can do? 
with your little grabber spiders, pick up other dead spiders. Yeah, it's right. cyclical. This is or other this bugs. is absolutely a solution in search of a problem that Faye Yap and her team. And it's like, oh, other spiders won't notice that this creepy undead spider with a hydraulic fluid line running from its head that smells like beeswax has come among them. They'll just be chill. It's like I. I am not an entomologist, Robin, as you know, right. but I rolled a disbelief. Look, Ken, the spiders pay for themselves. That's just how this works. <laughs> right. It, it's renewable necrobotics. Right. right. It, what, it, what it can actually do is lift a grant. It can lift a, a, a grant right out of the National Science <laughs> yeah. Foundation. So my closing thought is the line delivered at the end of Act 1 of the movie in which mechanical engineering professor Daniel Preston, who is a co-author on Faye Yap's paper, says... Despite looking like it might have come back to life, we're certain that it's inanimate. <laughs> this is where the Jeff Goldblum character rolls his eyes. Exactly. So what they're doing now is they're trying to vary the hydraulic fluids to get lighter ones so that they don't put as much strain on the spider. And they're trying different preservation techniques than common or ordinary or inexpensive beeswax so that they can keep them uh, their necrobots going for longer than a thousand grips and also... One assumes use tinier spiders because at some point you get a spider leg that's going to be the size of a blob of beeswax and you're not going to be able to wax it, right? Because the wax would just be the size of the leg and crush it. Right. But surely in our dystopia, this is just the first step in creating necrobotics from all sorts of other different um, organisms. You could not even necessarily, you know, all animals, certainly not just insects and arthropods, but uh, we've already seen from those horrible body works exhibits using trafficked bodies that you can fill the human form with resin. So if you can just start to use this technology, uh, here you go. Here you got your, your zombie robots. And Evan asks, are these technically undead? And I say, what do you mean technically? Yeah, they're literally undead. <laughs> they're clearly undead. You can't turn them as a cleric. That's the only problem. Right. Well, you have to have a, a special you know, technical ability. You have to be an engineer and a cleric to turn them. Mm-hmm. And I don't know, do we, do we want to do the modern version where the, the first necrobotic, uh, you know, first they do spiders and that's just on TV and then they do dogs and that's like a thing that you investigate as an experiment that they didn't quite put together. Do we want to start where they're doing people or uh, do we want to skip the people thing because it's overdone and have necrobotic bears or cougars or something like that on the loose? It's certainly the case that robot taxidermy, which is wouldn't be the same technology, that's not even new. That's like all over Etsy. You can get people's animatronic, relatively inexpensive robots made from animal parts, and that could certainly be part of this revolution, depending on how far we want to get away from actual science and into a realm of you know, sympathetic magic causing a whole uh, eruption of all of this sort of stuff. What, what I think is the real tragedy of this animating spiders for science is that it wasn't done long enough ago that you could, you know, have a really proper mad science setup with it. I feel like this is the sort of thing that, you know, it's just pressurized air, hydraulic fluid, and, you know, the willingness to play God. That's the sort of thing that you could have been doing in the 30s if you were, you know, Dr. Pretorius or um, some kind of weirdo uh, Nazis or Soviets or something. You could have been building robot spiders, necrobots, you know, long ago, and we could be in a world of mature necrobotic technology. And I feel like where your necrobots really come into their own, I feel like, is as a mature technology that permeates the world, and you only realize it's creepy when you're not from that world. And so, you know, maybe it can be another reality of the Yellow King that the, you know, Carcosan engineers introduced necrobots into the wars or something, or that you have a, a necrobotic universe, the next door that is opened up, you know, in, in Esoterrorists or in some other game, because the necrobots, like you say, once you can, you know, have people that are wandering around as necrobots or bears or dogs, I, I feel like the actual bot itself is not going to be that much scarier than the thing. I mean, maybe a necrobotic spider could be poisonous or whatever, but it can only lift 130% of a spider, so good luck, spider. But a necrobotic, you know, enormous necrobotic spider that carries a gun and, you know, a bunch of uh, paratroopers, that's a problem for everybody. So I guess a way to get them into the contemporary world is just to have a reality shift or a portal from another dimension where they come on through 
Otherwise, we're talking post-apocalyptic. And, uh, you know, it's hard to come up with new uh, apocalypses to be post. And a, a necrobotic one, I think, would be pretty strong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the um, uh, literal death spiral of culture just accelerates further as, oh, we don't need to keep people alive to run everything. We can use their necrobots, which they've, right. you know, signed up for in the user agreement in TikTok, you know. Yeah, they won't be, you know, draining the uh, government coffers and raising my taxes as an ultra rich person. So yeah, let's just, instead of having poor people, let's just have necrobots. Yeah. uh, Seems like a a much better system all the way around to the evil manipulators of that parallel dimension. Yes. And that we'll need people from our dimension to come in and uh, grab some heavy weaponry and uh, start uh, taking out their favorite luxury necrobots. Cause I'm sure there would also be, you know, there's the horrible grungy ones at the downward level of society. And then there's, you know, beautiful ones that have been, you know, gilded. And Sean Young in ones, that kind of thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's like, uh, yeah, here I've got my, you know, my necrobot of Brad Pitt. It cost me a yeah. billion dollars to, to buy and it's expensive to maintain, but it's Brad Pitt after all. Right. Yeah. And maybe that's why so many uh, rock stars die at 27 as people are collecting them for eventual necrobotic use that they've seen this coming. Right. Uh, well, now that we've got a, a dystopia for uh, player characters to uh, bust up, I think it's time for us to uh, head on over to a, a surely more peaceful hut where, where, where no blood will be shed and uh, Brad Pitt will be perfectly safe. The Best of Askfagelm is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic Choose Your Adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English. That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on drive through Turn on, tune in, and toad out in the prestigious company of such beloved Patreon backers as... John Burgess! Daniel Markwig! Ariel Celeste! Eric Saltwell! And Jeffrey Pittman! The rising action in the distance, the Freitag's triangle in the foreground, the cat up a tree welcome us, as always, into the narrative hut, where we're talking not in this case about the nature of narrative, but the nature of a set of narratives, or as it is called in our debased modern era, the genre. And today we're talking about the fantasy genre on the larger question of fantasy genre, rural or not. We begin fantasy, of course, uh, with your J.R.R. Tolkien, where hobbits uh, save the world because they are not grungy, industrial, citified folk. They they live in a sort of an idyllic village common kept uh, in existence by the rangers just against such an occasion and the destruction of the of the smokes and factories of Mordor and then the scouring of the Shire from the smokes and factories imported by Wormtongue are, you know, the the climaxes of Lord of the Rings. Robert E. Howard, of course, famously, is dubious of all cities because it's where decadence and civilization and sorcery exist, and then they yeah. fall into ruins and they're full of cannibals and wolf people and ghost snakes. And Conan, he's a simple folk from, you know, a, a country farm in Sumeria, and he, he doesn't understand your, your ways, and he doesn't like them, and he's going to whack them with his axe until you stop doing that. Yes, the hobbits are, you know, good English country folk. Conan is a uh, small-town Texan, mm-hmm. suspicious. A frontiersman, if you will. A frontiersman, suspicious of uh, particularly the foul sorcerers and their book learning. You know, they learn stuff 
using text, and uh, they go up in their towers, and then you've got to go up and kill them. And so these are the two twin influences that shaped fantasy as we now know it, particularly uh, secondary world fantasy, and certainly the two streams that blend together through uh, into D&D and then from D&D sort of radiate out from there to reshape and re-influence and create a genre out of a bunch of sort of separate things. And we and we should note that obviously Tolkien is working from William Morris, who himself had the socialist approval of the proletariat and the rich socialist disapproval of cities. And Howard, of course, is coming out of the tradition of the Western, in which the frontier is inherently cleaner and better than uh, the bad old city of the East. And so those sort of twin arcs of, of intellectual progenitorship spawn fantasy as we know it. it. It it goes back farther than Tolkien and Howard, but they're who spawn it. And even the efforts of people like Fritz Leiber, who writes, you know, delicious urban fantasy almost immediately afterwards, even Leiber is coloring Lankmar as a city of adventure and weirdness and danger and corruption, but in a fun way, you know, it's sort of the Arabian Nights, right. you know, Baghdad with, but without the religious connotation that Baghdad is the city of the, of the, of the Caliph and therefore approved of by God. It's like if Baghdad, you know, was amoral and atheistic, what it would be Lankmar fundamentally. Right. And the Oscar and Felix of, of that team, Fafford and the gray mouser, one of them is urban and the other is rural. So that's yes. got that, urban versus rural dichotomy uh, baked right into the two lead characters and Mm -hmm. is the basis of their, the contrast between them and their, their byplay. And so the question then moving forward is that since ruralism is most often associated with insular or conservative culture as composed to the liberal cosmopolitan of cities and people getting together and learning stuff and mixing cultures and changing traditions. How baked into the fantasy tradition is this and how aware are contemporary fantasy writers of this? Because certainly, as you mentioned, Liber completes the set of tropes that you can possibly deal with. So there are lots of fantasy stories since then that are essentially uh, urban stories. And it's most extreme form, you get to urban fantasy in the contemporary world where you have the images from uh, Tolkien and Howard, but they've been put into a, a nice, modern, recognizable city with a transit system. And so obviously that is uh, taking the the farm out of the fantasy genre. And for example, Swords of the Serpentine, it's swords and sorcery, but it's set in a city. And it, I, I guess I also have to wonder, has fantasy become more citified as we have become more citified uh, that in uh, Howard's day or in Tolkien's day, there was a much more percentage of people who uh, lived in rural areas and there's been a big migration to the city and has our imagination, even our fantasy imagination, migrated to the city and left the original ruralism of the genre behind. And the other stream that is reinforcing this, that is working very closely with it to create a sort of innate conservatism in fantasy or reaction in fantasy is the fact that virtually all fantasy deals with what is called instauration, the restoration of a better order that used to exist. So the return of the king We're not having a new king. We're not having a revolution. We're not going to give men and orcs and ants all a vote. We're going to go back to the sacred kingship of Isildur that in Conan's time, you know, things will get better because Atlantis will sink and it'll all be flooded. And then we'll, you know, be back to square one with, uh, with a new batch of barbarians, sort of a, a happy reading of Spengler in that way. And even the, you know, faultlessly cosmopolitan and twee urban fantasies, you know, when you go visit the fairy in these books, you know, starting, of course, with Emma Bulwar for the Oaks, the sort of patient zero of the genre, the fairies don't have a city. The fairies live in fairyland, which is a, guess what it is? It's a big rural monarchy. It's an Arcadia. It's an Arcadia. And so, you know, even though you're in Minneapolis, God forbid, and going to fairyland, you're not going to a better Minneapolis, or as I call it, St. Paul, you're going to (laughs) Arcadia. You're going to a rural monarchy in which you just coincidentally happen to be an aristocrat because that's how escapism works. So the fundamental DNA of fantasy is this instauration process. And 
I think that there is a large enough group of modern fantasy writers, uh, China Mieville pops to mind, who are aware of what their genre does if you let it, that they work very, very, very hard to avoid that. To the extent they succeed, I think they begin to move away from fantasy tropes and into either sort of science fiction or weird fiction. So, for example, you know, Mieville is full of, of love for cities, even as he's drawing, you know, terrible Dickensian cities, but he's trying to create this notion of an, of an urban paradise that you can aspire to in things like City in the City or even the New Crobazon stuff. And then Kraken, of course, is straight up Arabian Nights London. Uh, it's right out of the pages of Stevenson. And again, Stevenson is fairly reactionary for now, but in the 1880s, he was, you know, kind of a forward looking guy. So, I feel like, yes, fantasists, many of them are aware of it. Many of them, of course, are not aware of it because they are sloppy and bad, like the majority of writers in any genre. But there are some fantasists who try to avoid the combination of ruralism and instauration and others who say, well, as long as the people who travel to Arcadia and become aristocrats are diverse, that's enough. And that's perhaps not enough. But it certainly makes them happy and makes their audience happy. And isn't that the final statement for something like fantasy? Right. And the tension with trying to do that is that there is definitely within the fantasy audience a not necessarily a political conservatism, but an uh, an aesthetic one. So that it's the genre where you least want to introduce contemporary literary techniques. It's a genre where I think readers still want... Uh, a lot of lengthy description, as you would get in the Victorian novel, and the need for that or the justification for that, depending on which way you want to look at it, is because they're describing an imaginary world. And so uh, we want to, you know, really know what the trees look like and what the hills look like over here, and because they might be uh, otherworldly in a way. And so that they, the readers, I think, are looking not only for an Arcadia, but a uh, a literary Arcadia, a, a, a restoration of uh, past techniques. They don't necessarily look at it that way or would articulate it in that manner. But I think part of the promise of the genre is that a average fantasy book will mostly hold to a uh, set of uh, literary techniques that is increasingly out of favor in other genres and that you know that it's going to exist within a relatively narrow band of Uh, how it's going to present viewpoint characters, how much internal monologue there is, how much description there is, and indeed what what tense and what viewpoint it's written in. And so that's, I think, also whether you are, your old-timey drawing room is in your country house or in your city house, that's something that you as a reader are expecting from the fantasy uh, genre is a backward-looking style. Yeah, and again, you can have a backward style and and an advanced political sensibility. I mean, William Morris is literally the bodily incarnation of that but it is another i think you know pressure on a an undecided fantasy writer to keep things the way that they are to not rock the boat and that bleeds over obviously into the sorts of stories you tell and you know all of your returns of the king all of your chosen ones all of your opening the world to the beautiful ways of magic all of your snuggling with the the, a beautiful fairy of your choice those are all fundamentally reactionary stories and that's the sort of story that fantasy has been primed to tell since its birth and because the past is seen often correctly as agrarian that's the flavor of the past that is often restored and Very seldom do you see, I think almost never in fantasy, even the most, you know, advanced of fantasy uh, or progressive of fantasy, rather politically, do you see evil farmers and evil rural people right there? That's a horror genre where the farmers are scary. Right, exactly. And and horror, although it has its own reactionary tendencies, as Stephen King points out over and over and over again, is at least a venue in which any aspect of modernity can be criticized as supernatural and unnatural. And that can be, you know, farm folk, or it can be uh, city folk, or it can be all folk, right. uh, depending on who you are. And, and of course, there is a left ruralism, the ruralism of living off the grid and uh, an environmentalism that involves uh, degrowth. And that was certainly part of the uh, 60s counterculture movement and part of 
what I think we now kind of forget is that the in the 60s, Lord of the Rings was read as a counterculture text. Yeah, it was read by hippies. Yes, because it was uh, anti-industrial, therefore anti-corporate. And also pipeweed. Yeah, yeah, it's a combination of things. And of course, poor Professor Tolkien, while happy to cash the royalty checks, was dumbfounded that he'd written a work of Christian uh, reaction and found it embraced by a bunch of uh, smelly communists. That, to him, was something of a facer in his declining years, I imagine. Right. Well, as a Christian, he was unfamiliar with the phenomenon of a big, complicated book that lots of people can project things onto. Yeah. And on that note, uh, <laughs> let us let us flee to our final hut. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying, crime, and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or pre-order your glistening hardback slated for October release. It's once more time to enter that most ill-defined of huts, the huts where we're not really sure whether we're in the realm of the paranormal or the crank or the crackpot, but we sure do know that there, hanging over at the cafe table, is our gray alien and our Nordic alien. They're enjoying a little kombucha together. They're going to raise their glasses and a little toast. Out the window, we can see the alien big cat screaming on the moor because, yes, indeed, we're in the Liptony hut. And when I initially seized upon the topic of this segment, Ken, I thought, Oh, this will be like a sequel to our previous segment on Yuri Geller, who I know that we've talked about a bunch of times on this podcast, but it turns out we haven't done <laughs> Yuri Geller. And we've done 10 years of the show and we didn't get to Yuri Geller in his own segment. So he has a micronation and we're going to talk about that. But in order to talk about that, you're going to have to explain stage magician, psychic, dowser, spoonbender, and UFO contactee, Yuri Geller. Well, I mean, the shortest way to explain it is... He's a con man. <laughs> there we are. That was Yuri yeah, Geller. Well, we have a lot to get to, so yeah, yeah let's just get to the chase. But yeah, he's uh, born in uh, Tel Aviv in 1946. He's an Israeli, uh, began as a stage performer, did, you know, a mentalist act, spoon bending and, and whatnot. And in 1971, a fellow named Andrea Puharik, who's a parapsychologist, and also a CIA contractor, he said, rubbing his chin and thinking of Mike Grasso, brings yes. him to the United States in 1971 to be psychically tested by the academic infrastructure, the Stanford Research Institute, that underpins all of the various CIA and Army psychic warfare experiments. Speaking of the Bay Area, it's the uh, locus for the counterculture for messed and, up uh, stuff. toad venom. So, Stargate, Grill Flame... Men who stare at goats, all that good stuff is built on the work of Puharik, along with a couple of guys named Pudolf and Targ at SRI. Right. And SRI is also creating the internet at that time. Yes. Just throwing that out Doing there. Lots of stuff. Lots of good things. And when he comes to America, he goes on Johnny Carson in 1973. Now, Johnny Carson, as a former stage magician himself, has what many stage magicians have is an objection to trying to gull people with your art. The art is best when everyone knows it's a goal and still can't figure out how it's a goal and convinces themselves it must be magic. That's how you're supposed yeah, to do you, it. You don't pretend you're really bending the spoons. It's just a fun trick. Right. You don't do psychic work and pretend that it's real. You do it as a bit. And so he was mad at Uri Geller. He said, I'll have him on my show. I'll get James Randi. No noted stage magician, noted debunker. Noted debunker and fraud exponent or ex exposer, rather. I'm going to get him to advise me on how to do... Yuri Geller's bit so that Yuri Geller looks the fool. 
And so they swapped out all of his spoons for other spoons. They changed all of his gear around. They didn't let him touch or see any of it. And then they had a producer come out and give him a bunch of softball questions about, you know, your psychic powers so that he just thought it would be a, a talking segment. And then when he comes out, Carson's like, hey, bend this spoon. And Geller can't do it because it's not a hocus spoon. So for like that period of, of time, that segment, 22 minutes, Geller is just being humiliated, constantly unable to do the simplest act of telepathy, act of dousing, act of spoon bending, act of anything. And everybody disbelieved him after that, and he went away the end of the story. Nope. What happened was everyone watching on TV, because Carson at that time was king and is still the king of our hearts, everyone watching said, oh, well, if it was fake, he would be able to do it. But, you know, everyone's had a time when, you know, they've missed a shot at basketball or they've, you know, gotten lost driving their car. They Something goes wrong. If it's your normal stuff, of course, yeah. that's just percentages. You've blown my concentration with your skepticism, James. With Randy. your skepticism and your bright lights and your Ed McMahon. And everyone's like, well, Ed McMahon would interfere with my concentration. That's for sure. So, hey, oh, so the, the audience embraces Yuri Geller to their bosom and Yuri Geller moves into a gigantically expanded career of grifting and eventually gets to the point where he does dowsing for mining companies and oil companies and gets paid a not insubstantial sum of money to do so, including stock shares in the companies so that, you know, he's basically set for life because Carson did not, you know, go on at the beginning of the segment and say, here's what we're doing to mess with Yuri Geller. <laughs> right. And I guess he did that because he was worried Yuri Geller would notice. That, so but, he earns not just money, but yeah. Micronation money. Exactly. Which is not as much money as you would think. Because the Micronation he has chosen is an island called Lamb Island, or just The Lamb, because the Scots are cool, in the Firth of Forth, and it's between the islands of Fidra and Craigleith, off North Berwick. It is known as a suicide island because there's no place for a boat to moor there. So if you got trapped on it, no one will ever come by and get you off. The island is full of puffins and other sea, sea life, cormorants and whatnot. There was a single rat that had gotten to lamb. Apparently, Yuri Geller spotted it on an infrared camera that he had on the island for some reason. Yes, he used his psychic power or infrared camera to yeah. spot this rat. And he was saying, it's one rat on an acre-sized island. I should still get psychic points for that. And everyone's like, yeah, sure you should, yeah. Yuri. Well, I knew to look at the camera at that particular time. Mm -hmm. So he gets like, you know, very concerned wildlife volunteers because what you don't want on an island uh, full of birds or rather hapless uh, birds like puffins is you don't want two rats, yeah. especially if, you know, one of them is male and the other uh, is female. And so they got volunteers to do like 35 trips to this island slash rock to comb it for this rat. And uh, I don't know how many puffin eggs the rat got, but it finally was... And how many the hunters got. <laughs> yeah, it was finally extracted from this now, once again, pristine environment. And you may ask, but why, Ken, is Yuri Geller got infrared cameras on the, on the island of Lamb? Well, it's because he bought it. He bought it in 2009 for 30,000 pounds from the baron who held it at that time, a man who I suspect had bought the barony previously. Yes. Unfortunately, the barony, he, uh, Geller couldn't buy the title. No. And uh, the barony was uh, owned by a Brazilian. So if you were curious about that, you know, go look that up. Anyway, after buying it, he slept there for one night with a, a fellow named Andy Strangeway. Right. Who's a, f a fascinating classic English eccentric. This is someone whose claim to fame is occupying different points. Uh, and so he uh, says he slept on all 162 of Scotland's islands. And since it's very hard to sleep on land, this was his one chance at this. Mm -hmm. He also claims to have landed on all four of Scotland's extreme points, which is a disputed claim depending on whether you count one particular rock in international waters as being part of Scotland or not. Uh, he doesn't, and he hasn't been on that rock. Mm. He's been on the four extreme points of Yorkshire, which sounds like, you know, a record that you do and then tell people is a record. I don't yeah. imagine there's a lot of other competition for that honor. There, were, there was probably not some other Yorkshireman going, duh, beat me to the fourth point. Yes. Uh, he's also a campaigner against no overnight parking signs. Uh, he's been successful in, in several cases. As a man who likes to sleep places that you don't want people to park overnight. Right. Yeah. So clearly... There's some ley line activity going on with this guy. He's a, a connector of dots and, yep. and undoubtedly a reservoir 
of geomantic energy. Yeah, you assume that his, you know, pineal gland is magnetized to lay energies or something. But anyhow, once he's bought his island and chased the rat off, Yuri Geller then declares it a micronation. And he declares it uh, a nation on August 8th, 2022. You can't move to Lamb. It hasn't been a nation for like even a month yet. No, we, we're, uh, we're on the front of this story. Um, he's selling citizenships to Lamb because, of course, I said con man and grifter at the beginning of this segment. That's probably the least shady thing he, he's tried to sell. No, I mean, yeah. As a thing, it is the least shady thing Yuri Geller has done. It would be the most shady thing that, say, you or I have ever done. But there we are. I'm not saying I'm a Buffett. I just don't own an island. You don't own a... Well, Robin, I feel like if you and or I owned an island, it would be a better island than Lamb, first of all. And second of all, I don't want other people on my island. I'm on no overnight well, parking on my island. Well, you definitely not want any rats. No, a right. known opponent of the rat. Exactly. So, yeah, obviously, silver threads amongst the gray. Geller chased off a rat, or rather, had other people chase off a rat for him. Very Canadian of him. But, you know, good for you getting rid of a rat. Anyhow, the reason that Geller got interested in this this acre of rock in the Firth of Forth is that he read an article called The Pyramids of Scotland in Atlantis Rising Magazine. And I used to read Atlantis Rising Magazine back when I was writing Suppressed Transmission, and I was always in need of a topic, and it is a gallimaufry of nonsense, and I think I can say that, you know, as one who participates, but anyway, this fellow well, is... Well, thanks to your yeller for still reading up on stuff like this, Yeah, right? If you're, if you're a make-em-up, and you're reading other people's make-em-up, and keeping up to date on it, that's, you know, at least he's staying current. But the thing I had not foreseen going into the segment was the drumbeat of sympathy for Yuri Geller I was going to be getting from the other <laughs> side of the mic here. It's, it's ironic sympathy. Come on. It's ironic sympathy. All right, fine. Jeff Nisbet. Bless your heart, Yuri Geller. Is the author of The Pyramids of Scotland. He is an alternative researcher of the best kind. He's the kind who sits at home and draws lines on a map. Well, regular researchers have to look stuff up in books. See, see Jeff is above all that, although he does look some stuff up in books. I mean... For a guy who writes nonsense, he writes my kind of engaging nonsense. If you're going to be standing Yuri Geller, I will be pro Jeff Nisbet. Anyhow, he's, he points out that the three islands geometry matches that of the pyramids of Giza. And to which you may say, uh, all right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, things match other things. Yeah. That's meaningful. Also, he has drawn a ley line or discovered, depending on, you know, bicker and argue, from right. the Hill well, of you Terra. You go to like the ley line, you know, management society. Right. Yeah. Who's the ley line authority? Yeah, he's he's a ley line authority. He's his own ley line yeah. authority. He's a, a good-looking rebel leylinist. Looks like a code of his own. But the code of his own is to draw a line from the Hill of Terra through the Isle of May, which is also in the Firth of Forth, and is one of the places that people in Edinburgh call Avalon, because people in Edinburgh believe, as people all over the British Isles believe, that King Arthur actually lived right over there. The essential and beautiful provincialism of the British Islander is nowhere better than it is in King Arthur. So that big hill over uh, Edinburgh, that's Arthur's seat. That's where Camelot was. That island out in the bay, that's Avalon. Arthur did yes, all of his well adventures basically Arthur. within, you know, a two-hour drive of my house is what Edinburghers say. So anyway, but there's a ley line that goes through Lamb, officially coined in 2002, and it is possible that the Egyptian connection inspired Jeff Nisbet to seek, or the other way around, a book called the Scotochronicon, which was written in the 15th century, or as people who believe in the Scotochronicon often say, completed in the 15th century, and it <laughs> has as the origin of Scotland that Princess Scota, who's the daughter of the pharaoh who drowns in the Exodus, uh, driven away by uh, a faction at court, takes her Egyptian courtiers and buddies and high priests and sails to Scotland, where she settles down. And she brings the Stone of Scone with her, or possibly brings a different magic stone, and has adventures and uh, spawns yeah. the Scottish monarchy. And this so is basically... See what, see what happens when you investigate Yuri Gellow's micronation. You find out that Scots are secretly Egyptian. Well, I already knew that, Robin. I knew that long ago. Well, the, the listener, of course, is what I... Yes, the listener to. knows this. But anyway, Muhammad El-Fayed, Herod's department store magnate, and father of uh, Princess Diana's boyfriend, Dodie, met Geller in 2010 and gave him a copy of the Scotochronicon after Geller had bought lamb. So if you're right, trying because to... Because he's, he's offering to be president of Scotland when it's yeah, independent. Yeah, that's very big of him. I feel like if you're Scottish, 
what you don't necessarily want is an Egyptian Englishman to be your president. But but if you're also Egyptian, Ken, ah, this is the trail of logic. This right? is how it flips around on you. So anyway, Skoda apparently buried treasures on Lamb. Jeff Nisbet now suggests that also her uh, sorcerers engaged in magic to shape the island of Lamb because it's longer on a different map. <laughs> I'm making none of this up. And therefore, it was uh, built possibly by the Templars to look like the pyramids. That that was Lamb is a signal to all of you. And there's a lot of nonsense about the constellation Orion that is... Sure. So the the Christian implications of the name Lamb are just like a a a distraction. A, yeah, a, they they a just mess with you. Deflection from the Egyptian nature. They're they're meant to center the eye. I believe that you know you're meditating on the Lamb of God, which by which we mean Lamb Island, by which we mean Egypt the pyramids. Yeah, right. And also um, to throw it in, Lamb is off the coast of a town called North Berwick, which is in that part of Scotland. And that's where they had a big witch trial in 1590 because the North Berwick witches attempted to drown King James I when he was at sea. James VI of Scotland, as he was at the time, uh, didn't want any of that going on. And so they had a big old witch trial. And according to King James and the town of North Berwick and right. who, history. Who famously had a big grudge against witches, which yeah. makes sense that they're trying to drown him. Yeah. And according to all those people, their bodies were, of course, chopped up and thrown into a pit by the gallows, which is where you put witch bodies. But according to Jeff Nisbet, and this is the, the chef's kiss, uh, the bones of the North Berwick witches may be on lamb. Right. Because they would definitely go to all that. Trouble. Why? Why would you say that? Well, lamb is magic. They were magic. Right. QED. Well, I, I suppose if we want to find logic for this, that their bones would be magically redolent and somehow as the heirs of the European pagan gods, perhaps it was thought that they would cancel out the Egyptian god energy of, of the island. Yeah. It could be, it could be a, a Scots nationalism throwing off the Egyptian yoke, if you will. And that's why they didn't like uh, King James, of course, because he was, you know, 168th Egyptian on his grandmother's side or whatever. And uh, so the notion is that Yuri Geller, since it is illegal to do mining or digging on land because it's a bird refuge, and he says, oh, though, even though it's my own nation, all the laws of lamb are staying intact, which again, Robin, I feel like this is a guy who is not doing his micronation correctly. The whole point of a micronation is to make, you know, ecstasy legal and just go bananas on it. Yeah, but if there's only puffins there, yeah. they don't care if ecstasy is legal. Well, you know, it's, I'm sure that Lamb is, again, a poor island from this perspective, from my micronation perspective. Well, but, apparently it's very uncomfortable to sleep in yeah. because it's basalt. Yeah, so. it, it's all it's all hideous uh, rock. I, I wouldn't go to the trouble of rewriting a bunch of laws for, for a basalt rock. You can't go to. Right. Well, the, the notion is that he will go there eventually and he'll use his psychic powers and he'll find the treasures of Skoda and the bones of the North Berwick witches and then you'll all see. Although, what he's going to do if he finds them and says, oh, they're beneath this rock that I can't dig up. You'll just have to trust me. I mean, on one hand, it's literally what he's always said. So Right. So, it's a giant beacon of lay power. Uh-huh. Uh, we haven't gotten much into his claims of UFO contact. but <laughs> Who's got this kind of time? <laughs> exactly. Uh, well, I, I thought we'd done them already. Yeah. And so the obvious thing to do if, when fictionalizing this is to, I guess there's a bunch of uh, things that your antagonist can be trying to, you know, capture their micro island and finish off the big ritual that brings all of the power to them that comes from, you know, having been in the seven points of Yorkshire and the four extremes of Scotland and, you know, bring the pyramids up from the sea and all of that uh, good stuff. And whether that's what's really going to happen or whether it's just all about sending a beacon to the UFO aliens who uh, might turn out to be more Independence Day aliens than Close Encounters aliens. Well, they're giant intelligent computers, Robin, is the aliens that Geller talked to, if you want to know. Right, which makes total sense with SRI. And basically, he was talking to the Internet. And that's mm -hmm. <laughs> that, that could drive anyone around the bend if you had a long conversation with the Internet before it was invented. <laughs> sure. Why not? So, I think the scenario essentially writes itself is that it's a race against time to prevent the ritual from being realized on the micronation. And uh, alternately, you can do the person who's uh, activated, full of lay power, uh, after completing the ritual and then wreaking havoc. 
back in the UK or wherever else you want to have them fly to to uh, to wreak that havoc. Yeah, that, that's a that's a good one where your uh, Andy Strangeway figure has been accidentally filled up with space computer or Egyptian or Templar or all three energy from the lays of Lamb and all kind of, you know, this is normal now weirdness is going on around him and you figure it out and it's like, oh, it's because of this island that you can't get yep. to or land and on. To stop them, you have to find the descendants of the North Berwick witches. Who are the right, the only ones who can translate you to Lamb magically and let you fight the power there. Exactly. Well, I think uh, having tied that all up with a, a witch bone bow, as it were, we can conclude this episode and go and rest up for a whole week and then come back with more of the similar. Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Prowl Grain Press. Asphagelm. Arc Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Simple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Support our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Robin. Protect this podcast from undead robot spiders by joining such vigilant backers as... Yadge from Edinburgh. Linda and Mike Schiffer. Peter Nix. Philip Masters. And Darren Hennessy. Wear this show or drink it from a mug with Ken and Robin merch at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Check out our latest Mythos Rabbit design, Bunwitch Horror. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. <laughs> <laughs>